Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We're recording this on Tuesday, June 21st, 2022. And today we are joined by Judge Ashley Wilcott, a child welfare specialist, trial attorney, judge, legal analyst, and daily host on Court TV. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us again. It's a pleasure to have you back. Always happy to be with you. Thank you. You come on with Court TV, and I I just love talking to you about these major cases. So thank you. Oh, fantastic. Well, this what we're going to be talking about today are a lot of cases that I know you've been following pretty closely on your show. So I'm sure uh, folks will be very interested to hear some of your thoughts on these. So let's jump right in. Uh, The first one is about the romance novelist Nancy Crampton Brophy was sentenced to life for murdering her husband. This is out of Portland, Oregon. Nancy Brophy, a self-published romance novelist who once wrote an essay titled, get this, How to Murder Your Husband, was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of her husband, Daniel Brophy. Daniel was gunned down at the Oregon Culinary Institute, where he was a beloved teacher in that community. The prosecution alleged that financial gain was the primary motive, with over one million in life insurance policies taken out on Dan's life. A murder weapon was not, interestingly, forensically matched in the killing, but Nancy had done some research uh, online that the prosecution had uh, on ghost guns, and uh, she had actually purchased a kit online. The prosecution also alleged that Brophy used a Glock 17 that was found in her possession. However, they believe that she switched out the barrel and slide mechanism to alter the ballistic footprint, meaning She switched out the barrel so it left different markings on the bullet that was actually used in the murder and then discarded that barrel but still had the gun, which is actually some pretty clever thinking if you're actually trying to commit murder. Also, a van matching Nancy's was also captured on surveillance camera. Ashley, I know you followed this case very uh, closely. Did this conviction and, and sentence surprise you at all? Not at all. And let me just go back to something you said about the gun. Yes, very thoughtful in terms of doing that with the gun. But on the other hand, is it a surprise that that comes from someone that also wrote a book to your point or a manual on how to kill your husband? So maybe not surprising. But honestly, for me, this was all about, Joshua, the reasonable doubt. And there has to be in the minds of the jury no reasonable doubt, no other good common sense explanation. And I felt like by the time all the evidence was presented, there truly was no other reasonable explanation for what happened. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember a a colleague of mine, a mentor talked about sometimes it's not about who did it as much as it's about who else could have done it. Right. You limit you eliminate all other possibilities so that it has to point back towards uh, your defendant. Now, she took the stand in her own defense in this case. Do do you think that was a mistake? Do you think her her testimony It obviously wasn't convincing enough, but what did you think of it? You know, it was interesting to me that she took the stand. So, for instance, when you have a self-defense case, and I know we're going to talk about one of those a little bit later in your show, but when you have a self-defense case, sometimes the defendant really does need to testify because they have to convince that jury, oh, I did it. 
but it was in self-defense. When you have a case like this with Nancy Brophy, where it's not a self-defense case, and really I think she just wants to get up there and tell her story and convince this jury, it's always a risk. It's always a risk because she doesn't have to get up there. Of course, we know that every defendant has the remain, right to remain silent. And in fact, I was surprised when she took the stand because I didn't know what she might say that could convince the jury against all the evidence that the prosecution was presenting. So I don't think it helped her case. But honestly, I don't think that no matter what she said, I didn't feel like it was going to change the opinion of this jury that she was guilty of this crime. Yeah, really interesting. Who knows if it was just kind of a Hail Mary by their, her team because they saw it lining up so strongly against them that she thought, well, you know, at least put me out there and I'll I'll, I'll die on my own sword type of thing. And you make such an excellent point. What was she going to add other than to get up there and deny it and say, no, it wasn't me. She's not really adding anything, like you said, in a, in a self-defense uh, testimony. And we're going to talk about one of those. You could understand why you want to hear from that person. But here it's like all you're going to get up there is 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 subject yourself to cross-examination. And what I've always thought is that jurors, they want one little thing to hang their hat on, right? If they if they feel that person's guilty and then they get up there and testify and they make one little mistake or they're caught up in one little lie, they can hang their hat on that and and that really seals the deal. You think that's what took place here? I agree with you. I think that can see the deal. The other part of this, I think, is, you know, you know, as well as I do, these attorneys sometimes advise their client just to your point. No, you have nothing to add. There's no value in your testifying. And in fact, it's a risk because if you say something wrong or something that jury doesn't like, that may help them make an emotional decision to convict. So it could have been one of those cases because Nancy Brophy is a little unique of a case, right? Like all of the evidence and where it happened at his job and the maze that you had to go through to even get there, which meant someone with knowledge of the actual facility had to have been the one to do it. All these little pieces that added up for her conviction. And she wrote that manual about how to kill your husband. And so you put all that together and you think maybe she was advised not to testify. And she said, don't care. I'm testifying. We just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. One last question I had on this, and you mentioned that that manual, how to murder your husband. It, w it wasn't allowed into court by the judge. And um, it really didn't seem like it affected the prosecution's strength of their case at all. But the judge made an interesting comment, and I was hope you could kind of uh, tease this out for listeners. The judge said that any minimal, minimal probative value of an article written that long ago is substantially outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice and confusion of the issues. Could you walk us through that? Sure, absolutely. And I actually, I agreed with the judge in this finding. So when I was on the bench, of course, as you know, and there was an evidentiary argument, I always had to consider whether the probative value outweighed the prejudicial value, because if it's more prejudicial than it is probative and relevant to the case, then I can't allow it in because that's going to negatively affect, it's going to prejudice the defendant. And so in this case, I think the biggest issue was the time frame. If she had written that, let's say a month, two months before this happened, then there's a really good argument to say, oh, this is probative. She just wrote this and now lo and behold, her husband's been killed. 
But when it's seven years before, that's a long time ago. There's a pretty good argument that, no, that was too long ago. There's no reason that should come into this trial. I think that's what the judge did. And I don't disagree with the judge's ruling in this particular instance. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it was the right call, especially because part of a judge's job, and you know this, is to kind of protect that verdict, right? To make sure that this is not something that goes up on appeal and completely falls apart because you allowed in some evidence that really wasn't necessarily and it was maybe more prejudicial to the jury. So good call by the judge here. Yeah. All right. Can I just add to that, Joshua? I love that you pointed out that a judge's job is to manage the courtroom, to make those findings, but also to do it correctly and well so that the verdict does stand up on appeal. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. All right, moving to Danielle Redlick, acquitted of murder in the death death of her stepfather, get this, turned husband. Now, this one, uh, I got to say, was a little surprising to me. Redlick was acquitted of second-degree murder by an Orange County, Florida jury. She was found guilty, however, of tampering with evidence. She had admitted during testimony of making efforts to clean up her husband's blood after his death. In 2019, Danielle's husband, 65-year-old Michael Redlick, was found stabbed to death in the couple's Winter Park, Florida home. Michael Redlick was previously married to Danielle's mother, Kathy. So there's that whole mess going on. Friends say that they married because Kathy was suffering from cancer and needed insurance. After Kathy's death, Michael began a relationship with Danielle, if you can follow all of that. So Danielle and Michael's 17-year marriage was described as quote unquote, toxic. There are reports of infidelity on both sides. Danielle claimed that the fight preceding Michael's death was over her texting another man. And the prosecutors alleged that Danielle was using a dating app in the hours between her husband's death and her call to 911 operator. It was several hours uh, that there was a delay there. Danielle told jurors that her husband's death was self-defense, claiming that he attacked her and she feared for her life. Danielle is set to be sentenced for the tampering charge on August 5th. Okay, so did, did did this surprise you? What was your reaction? Are you kidding? It absolutely surprised me. That was my reaction. I wasn't saying that to you, Joshua, but are you kidding? What <laughs> was my reaction? Yeah, because yeah. I am shocked that this case ended up as a not guilty because of self-defense on the murder charge. Now, let me say, in the last case, we talked about when, oh, yes, Nancy Brophy's testimony really didn't help her. Why did she get up on the stand? This case turned on the testimony, in my opinion, of the defendant, because Redlick got up there, testified consistently, her demeanor, her words, her version of the story as she was on the stand was consistent. And I think that's what convinced this jury to find it was self-defense. Okay. I'm glad you watched it so closely because here's a question I had. I want you to compare her testimony to some other very famous recent testimony that we've heard from a a, a female alleged victim of domestic violence with Amber Heard. How do you think those two compare to each other? And do you have a feeling as to why we saw such dramatically different results? Night and day. If I were comparing the two, to me, it was night and day. I will give, you know, it's fun to be on with you, not only because you're a great legal mind, but because... I can actually give my opinion when I'm in the hosting chair. I try not to give my opinion, but my opinion is Amber Heard and a lot of viewers I know have said this as well. I did not find her credible. Many did not find her credible. And part of it was her tone. 
her demeanor that would change and vary, but also because she never took any responsibility for any of her actions. And the difference, the primary difference to me between that case and the Danielle Redlick is she took responsibility. She just described things that had happened, what she'd done, that she admitted, yes, he was married to my mother. He was my stepfather. They were married. And then my mother passed away. And it was really kind of a for, for insurance kind of marriage. And we were just friends. And I was doing domestic activities in the home and in the same house as him. And then it grew from there. And so I found her very believable in terms of her owning her stuff, talking about arguments that they had. It was a toxic relationship. And I guess that's what convinced the jury. She sounded real. She sounded credible. It didn't sound like a bad actress. It sounded like really a, a pitiful beaten woman recounting lots of abuse, different examples of abuse and why this was this stabbing was self defense. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And not to make our discussion of this case so much about another discussion of the Depp v. Heard case, but the points that you make about admitting where you were wrong and taking ownership of your own bad behavior, you can contrast the same with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Depp owned a lot of what he did. Yeah, I was drinking heavily. Yeah, I was doing drugs. Yeah, I said some pretty, pretty awful things in text messages and everything, but because he owned it in such an authentic way, we found him to be believable. Whereas what you point out with Amber Heard, she was just denying any kind of culpability on her own part at all. And then was so hyperbolic about what she claims had happened to her with no corroborating evidence that she just lost credibility. None of those did you see with with the testimony here in Redlick. And it obviously was strong enough, as you point out, to have convinced the jury. And I have to say one more thing about Redlick, and that is, remember, she convinced this jury when it is a fact that she waited 11 hours before calling 911 and that she also tried to clean up the scene, tried to cover it up. And yet they found self-defense. Obviously, she was pretty darn believable. Yeah. And I'll do you one better after she changed her story a few times. Right. Yes, she told 911 one story. She told the police another. And then she gets up and testifies to yet a a third different uh, uh, series of events. But something about the way she put it all together, uh, it it was convincing to them. Good point. Uh, You're right. You're right. Sticking with this case on on kind of another sad note, um, Danielle's children have been appointed a guardian. You have some background with this in in children. What do you think will be next for the Red Lick children? Sure, absolutely. I have a lot of background in this. And so the reality is when one parent is deceased and the other parent is in jail, uh, the courts are going to get involved. There's going to need to be custody somewhere. A guardian ad litem is appointed. The guardian ad litem is responsible for advocating for the best interest of the child. It's not necessarily what a child wants. That's what their attorney does, but what's in their best interest. And so now that she's out, When there's a court involved, when there's a guardian ad litem involved, it doesn't mean she's out of jail, dismissed children home with her because the the court's already in the role of protecting the children, of ensuring that they're safe and doing what's in the best interest. And so now I'm assuming, I don't know this, but my assumption is the courts are going to look at what's in the best interest of the children. An attorney for the children's going to talk about what the children want to decide, can the children just go back? home to mom? 
or do they need to have a transition with supervised visits to ensure that she's appropriate with them and that they want to be there and that it's going well? Or is it going to be they don't want to go home and the court finds it's not in their best interest to go home because even though it was self-defense, she killed their father. A lot of questions that are going to have to be answered by the court, decided by the court, guardian and litem making recommendations, attorney um, for the children saying this is what they want, the attorney for the mom saying this is what she wants. A lot more has to happen to determine where those children are going to physically live. Yeah. Very, very sad story, though, to, for the for the kids to essentially, you know, have, have this tragic situation with both of their parents. Now, we 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 hope things turn out um, better for them and we're wishing the best for them because they're just kind of the the innocent victims here. Um, well, we want to pull upon your experience as a judge again in another case uh, that has kind of a shocking twist here. We're talking about Cristiano Ronaldo. The, his rape case was dismissed due to misconduct of the plaintiff's attorney. So this was a federal civil case alleging that the Portuguese soccer player Cristiano Ronaldo raped a woman in Las Vegas hotel room in 2009. And it was dismissed last, last week in a shocking move by the judge. This is Judge Jennifer Dorsey said that the, the attorney for the accuser, Catherine Mayorga, engaged in misconduct so severe that it would be impossible for Ronaldo to have a fair trial. Mayorga claimed um, she was coerced into signing a non-disclosure agreement and given $375,000 in a settlement following the alleged rape, which Ronaldo has at all times maintained was consensual. Judge Dorsey found, and this is a quote, the misappropriated documents and their confidential contents have been woven into the very fabric of Mayorga's claims. Dorsey ruled that striking the leaked documents from the case and disqualifying the attorney, this is Leslie Mark Stovall, would not adequately address the misconduct. So Mayorga's attorney reportedly used documents leaked to German news outlet Der Spiegel in the prosecu in the their, their plaintiff's um, prosecution of this case. So how rare is it, uh, Judge Ashley, for an entire case to be dismissed because of the actions of the attorney? Well, um, yes, it's rare. Unfortunately, it can happen. And to me, this is the pinnacle of an example of why it might happen. Because if an attorney, uh, is there's any alleged misconduct by the attorney, usually there's a way to solve it. Whether the attorney is going to be dismissed off the case, they have to withdraw, someone else is appointed. Whether it's um, those documents are redacted or not allowed. There are usually ways to resolve whatever problem they've created because of their alleged misconduct. In this case, it's an extreme because the judge made the finding that you want a judge to find, which is there's no way to remedy what they've done wrong. There's no remedy. As a result, I have to dismiss. And I'm going to guess this. I'm going to guess that that judge legally probably did the right thing. But that doesn't mean that judge is going to sleep easy at night because her hands were tied and her hands were tied because of misconduct by an attorney. Yeah, well, and I and I and I venture to guess that this is probably not the first time that this judge has had to somehow correct or reprimand this attorney. Like you said, it's a it's a drastic kind of step to make. I agree with you. And I think you're saying it was the right decision to make. Um, but it, it's a difficult decision for that judge. But it sounds to me like this had been kind of some ongoing uh, misconduct or ignoring of rules. And the judge just was at their wits end and had to take this kind of drastic action. 
in a situation like this, could Mayorga have grounds for legal action against her lawyer? Is there is there like a legal malpractice theory here? Absolutely, in my opinion. But let me go back to one other thing and then I'll turn to that because I just wanted to add, you know, I think the reason I do agree that the judge made the right decision. But one of the things for everyone to realize is you cannot allow a defendant to be unfairly prejudiced. And in this case, because those documents were utilized by the attorney for the plaintiff in the way they were, there was no way to get out of that. It had already happened to him. And so I think that's really the crux of it. Now, moving on to the plaintiff and her attorney who's been alleged, has allegedly uh, engaged in this wrongdoing. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are two ways, you know this, that people can seek recourse against their attorney for something. Number one is they can allege malpractice. Attorneys are required to have malpractice insurance for these very things. And number two, well, in Georgia, they're required. I'm not sure if all states require it, but malpractice is a very real thing. The other thing is a bar complaint. Now that is a different um, recourse, but absolutely, if anyone has this type of action by their attorney, there are uh, different remedies available, not only to punish the attorney for the wrongdoing, but also to try, to try it, in this case it won't, but to try to make it right for the person um, that was being represented by that attorney. In this case, with rape allegations, I don't think that's possible. But in a perfect world, that's why there are different remedies available. Yeah, and I, I imagine we're going to see something like that because, like, like you said, they, the for the 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 plaintiff to be so punished that they're left with no recourse because the judge simply could not deal with it the way you pointed out. There was no way to remedy the damages done by this attorney. That is. That is to the point of egregious, and you would think that the state bar at the very minimum would need to intervene and get involved in that case. Right, absolutely. And as you know, state bar, once they get involved, if they determine there's been a violation, you certainly have a right to tell them why you did it or didn't do it and what happened. But if they find there's been a violation, it can be anything from a suspension, a fine, up to disbarment. So it's a serious matter when the state bar investigates attorneys. Yeah. Pretty incredible stuff. I'm glad that we have you on talking about it for this episode because there's so many kind of nuanced things that it's good to hear insights from a judge on how these things are handled. All right, turning to uh, our our favorite case and and still running, uh, Amber Heard is still in the news after a Fairfax court awarded Johnny Depp 10 million in his defamation suit. Amber Heard has given her first post trial interview with Savannah Guthrie for NBC. Heard claimed that notes from her doctor describing abuse she suffered from debt could have changed the outcome of her case. The notes document that Amber Heard discussed domestic abuse with her therapist as far back as 2012. These dis uh, notes were uh, not allowed in the trial um, because they were ruled to be hearsay. Heard's lawyers also gave NBC News access to text messages the actress exchanged with her father detailing Depp's alleged abuse. A juror for the case appeared on Good Morning America saying Heard didn't come across as believable. So interesting, these kind of new insights that we're getting into this. Uh, first of all, t talk to us a little bit about why the judge would keep this kind of stuff out. So I don't know. And here's why <laughs> I say that, because... That hearsay exception, a, a witness can always testify as to what one of the parties has told them. So if Johnny Depp told someone something, they can say what Johnny said. If somebody says Amber Heard told me that, they can say what Amber Heard said. 
That's the rules of evidence. But if you notice in this trial, that wasn't always allowed. So I don't understand why that therapist could not have been called to convey what Amber Heard said to him, unless it's because it was in texts and there was no way to confirm it was her texting those. That's the only caveat I can think of. But but if, if in fact, it's correct that it was within a hearsay, uh, there, there was no hearsay exception rather, and she shouldn't be allowed to use that as evidence, I think you need to sit down and, and be quiet because there are other types of recourse available. A, appeal. If that's the case and you've got those and you believe that it's within a hearsay exception and is allowed, appeal, 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 appeal. B, what are you trying to do? If you're trying to win in the court of public opinion, which is why you would let all this stuff out there, do it in a way that might be believable. But if you look at viewers of watching that interview, just the same as viewers who watch the trial, they just don't believe Amber Heard. So uh, I have a lot of thoughts in my head, and I'm sorry I just threw them all at you at once. No, please, no, <laughs> no. Uh, you, you, you said exactly what I was thinking too, and my my question was going to be to you, and I think you've already kind of answered that. the The court of public opinion has so turned strongly against her. Do you think this moved the needle at all? This interview, and uh, and and to add to that, before you give your answer. The interview received Dateline's lowest viewership numbers for the season. Wow. Well, I didn't know that. And I think it speaks to what my opinion is, which is she's only doing herself more harm. It is not helpful to go out there because it's almost like you're protesting too much. Now you want to show us evidence and text that we don't know anything about from the court case. And if they were supposed to come into evidence, why aren't you appealing? And they've said they're going to appeal and they might, but I, I think it's hurting her. I think that the more she says, the more the attorneys say, depending on how it's said, if it's at all not credible or stop talking. I just, that's just my opinion. Just stop, stop the spinning. Look at legally what's the recourse, what can be done next, decide if you're going to do that. But I just don't think that the interviews and the statements are helping her at all. Yeah, especially if you're trying to resuscitate your career after all of this. I don't think you're doing yourself any favors by continuing to double down and dig your, your heels in. I mean, I'm no... PR expert, but it just it seems like it's backfiring and not working. Um, it, it, looking at this case, now that we've had a you know few weeks to kind of look back on it and let the dust settle, do you think that there was anything different that the her team could have done to affect the outcome of this case? You know, I question some of the evidentiary issues, some things that weren't allowed in that I didn't think were hearsay because it fell within an exception. And here's what I'm not privy to. What were the pretrial motions like? What were the pretrial arguments like? So first of all, I would love to have insight into that because I think some of their case was lost in the pretrial. I think some things, for instance, not allowed because they were hearsay could have been allowed, but maybe the judge already ruled differently in pretrial motions. So I guess I would look at the pretrial motions, but I also, I question the wiseness of Amber Heard testifying Maybe she had to because it was a counterclaim and she was making allegations against Johnny Depp. But the way she testified, I'm sure she was prepared at length for the trial of this caliber. Of course, I'm sure she was prepared, but I just don't think it helped the case. I think that 
I just think that there need to be a fine tuning of lawyering to really hone in on the issues and focus on the issues. And it, it, it got a little out of control and it just all made her look not very credible. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, you know, something to point out to people that they might not appreciate. Th there's no gotcha evidence in these trials. This litigation has been taking place for years. Both sides have all the pictures, all the documents, all the text messages. So when she's going up there and testifying to having been punched in the face so many times that she lost count, how do they not know or do they know and they're just stuck to this narrative that the first cross-examination question is going to be, here's a picture of you from the next day looking pristine. That to me was such damaging cross-examination because when you when you sell something to a jury that that is that dramatic and horrific the way that you describe it and then you've got no real evidence to back it up as far as photographs or medical reports or anything else you're going to get torn apart on cross-examination. And my point is not so much that that happened, but why didn't they see that coming from 42 miles away with as much time as they've had with all of this? Before they thoughts? ever walked into a courtroom, I did not feel watching. I did not feel that either side were truly prepared to go to trial. I did not feel like the lawyering skills had been honed to say, I'm in trial. That's a whole different skill set than an attorney working on all the discovery and the motions. And it's not a bad or a good thing. It's the reality. Being a trial lawyer is very different. You know this than almost any other kind of law, just like that kind of law is different than being a trial lawyer. And so I didn't feel like any of the attorneys walked in there with the mindset of, I'm a trial attorney. I better know how to try a case. Yeah. The thing I think about also speaking out publicly at this point to try to build up a career again, how many famous people can you think of, Joshua, who have done something really atrocious, horrific, and then nobody talks about it and it goes away because there's some news story. And once yep. that news story with well, somebody else comes up, it goes away. I think if she will be quiet with time, that's when these things start to diminish in people's minds. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I, I always think the best thing is keep your mouth closed and allow time to pass and people's memories are fickle and they will move on to something else. And then by the time you kind of quietly resurface, I'm thinking of Mel Gibson right now, that by the time you kind of quietly resurface and you, you, you're you a take on a role as a director and then you're acting, people are just kind of put it behind them. But you continue to put yourself out there. You're just going to remind them more and more of what it is that got you in trouble in the first place. Great example. Agree. Yeah. Well, well, I'm sure this won't be the last time we're talking about this case. But in the meantime, Ashley, thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? You can uh, AshleyWilcott.com, two L's, two T's, or CourtTV.com. You can always watch us live covering trials. Or you can email me via that website. Fantastic. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thanks for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. <laughs>